And so this morning, as, uh, as we come now to the close of this series, uh, Peter is writing here, and, and we've kind of walked through these, these days together, and, and really, um, as we've walked through First Peter, and, and Peter has talked about suffering, he's talked about trials that people would face, um, trials that the church would face, and persecution that the church would come under, um, it has been kind of us walking through that uh, and seeing it from his day, walking really through the same type of stuff in our day today. And Peter is writing this knowing that a fiery trial was going to occur. And he wanted the church and, and, and the entire body of Christ to be prepared for that. So he's writing that to the church of that day, but he's also speaking to us through the power of the Holy Spirit today. And as Peter comes to the close of this letter, He's giving the church an important call to obey. And, and I think this is important for us because it's not a question of if we are going to go through trials or if we are going to experience suffering. The reality is, is that we are going to go through trials. We are going to experience suffering. Some of you are here this morning or you're watching with us right now online and, and that's your testimony. Your testimony is, no, I am in the midst of a trial, or I am suffering right now today. And so Peter comes now in these final words, because here's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not just to make it through to the other side. The ultimate goal is to glorify God in the midst of what we are going through, in all things and through all things. And so he's giving here three things for the church for us to just obey if we're gonna glorify God in the midst of the trial. And the first thing is this, it is just to simply humble yourself. Humble yourself. Look with me at verse five of First Peter chapter five. He says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So I love it there right at the beginning of verse five. He says, in the same way. That's the same phrase, the same verbiage that he used in 1 Peter chapter two and verses 13 through 17 when he admonished the church to be submissive to government authorities. It's the same verbiage again where he, he told slaves to submit to their masters in verses 18 to 25 of chapter two. So he told wives to submit to their husbands in 1 Peter chapter three in verses one through seven. And now he comes again here to all of the believers and he's commanding them to submit to God and to submit to each other. And he says, do this in the same way. And he's referencing there, this is what Christ did. This is how Christ approached humanity. And so in that same way, submit yourselves to one another and submit yourselves to God. He's saying younger believers should submit to older believers, not only out of respect for their age, but also out of respect for their spiritual maturity. Now understand this, Peter's not saying that every senior uh, is mature in their faith. He's speaking here to the church with this understanding that we're gonna come together as multiple generations, as people from all different walks of life, and we're gonna submit to one another, and we're gonna do that out of our submission to God because this is who we are called to be as the church. 
The church is not to be separated by ages. It's not supposed to be here's where the young people go to church and here's where the old people go to church. It is where, this is where the believers come together together. This is where the body of Christ comes under one roof, all together from all ages, all walks of life, to do one thing, to lift up the name of Jesus. But if that's gonna take place, then there's humility that has to be in play. If we are going to all believers, young and old, submit to each other, and if as all believers we are going to submit to God, you and I cannot do that. That's not our nature. That's not how we're wired. That's not what we want to do. Once again, I said this when I preached on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. There's not a single person that woke up this morning and said, you know what I want to do? I want to submit to somebody else. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. You want to know how I know I didn't do it? I ran three stop signs on my way here. That sign said stop, and I'm like, I am not submitting to that authority. And I'm just glad there were no police officers that were, uh, that were hanging out in the midst of that. But you don't know, no, like we don't do that. That's not our natural inclination. The only way to do this in the church and to God is to clothe ourselves with humility. It, it, it's just as Jesus did. Jesus laid his outer garments down. He took up a towel and he put it on and became a servant to wash the feet of the disciples. And this is the same attitude that we have to have if we're gonna minister to each other and, and to the world as the church. It's the humility that's described in Philippians 2 and verses 1 through 11. But understand this, humility is not demeaning ourselves. Humility is not thinking poorly of ourselves. Humility is just simply not thinking of ourselves at all and, and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. But the truth is this, is that you and I will never be able to be submissive to each other until we're first submissive to God. That's why Peter quotes Proverbs 3.34, kind of making his point here, defending what he's calling the church to do. That, that verse just says, he mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. James also comes back around this, this verse again when he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In James 4 and verse 6, it takes grace to submit to another believer. But the beauty of this is that it's through God Almighty that he gives us grace if we will just simply humble ourselves before him. This is where pride becomes the dangerous, the dangerous thing for us. It was pride that stirred Adam and Eve in the garden and led to the fall, this idea of I know better than God and I'm gonna be like God and that I can be the God of my own life. And the only antidote to pride is the grace of God. It's because it's in receiving the grace of God that we begin to understand our lack, our inability to put everything together and to keep it all together. I'm telling you, you show me somebody that has been radically transformed by the grace of God. And I'll show you somebody that gets it, that they can't, but that God can. And this understanding, and as we receive that grace, then what begins to happen is in our yielding to God, then there is an evidence that overflows out of that, where that, in that grace we begin to yield to one another. See, submission is an act of faith. It's just simply us trusting God to direct us in our lives and to work out his purposes in his time. And that's the key phrase in here when Peter just says, in due time. Because see, God never exalts anyone until that person is ready for it. It's first the cross and then the crown. It's first the suffering and then the glory. Moses was under God's hand for 40 years before God sent him to deliver the Jews out of Egypt. Joseph was under God's hand for at least 13 years before God lifted him onto the throne. 
And, and, and let's be real here. Nobody wants to hear this word, but one of the evidences of our pride is our impatience with God. It's just simply our impatience. It's we want to move ahead of God. We, we want to get ahead of what God is seeking to do in his time and, and put it on our timetable. Now, now, I'll tell you this. I, I warned the, the first service about this as well. Don't pray for patience. Anybody ever done that? How'd that work out? It's like I left very impatient. Yeah, no, like we don't want to do that. But this is what we have to do. And a lot of times we go through the trials and we go through the suffering. and We go through the difficulty. And it's just a season in which we can learn patience. Peter is referencing the words that he heard Jesus say in Luke 14, 11. It says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Peter lays this out. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, and he's gonna lift you up in due time. He, he, he says it in the same way. Submit yourselves, and so clothe yourselves with humility. But he does that because there's a benefit of this kind of relationship with God. And it is just simply the privilege of then allowing God to take care of our burdens. But see, we have to get to the place where we can meet the conditions that are laid down in verses five through six so that we can then begin to claim the promise of verse seven. Circle that word anxiety there in your scriptures because it says cast all your anxiety on him in verse seven. That word anxiety means the state of being pulled apart. And just this idea of kind of being separated and pulled apart at every single corner of who you are. But that, the the definition there of anxiety is the absolute opposite of what the gospel is. Because the gospel is not seeking to pull you apart. Paul tells us that in Colossians that, that Jesus, he was before all things, and that it is in Jesus that all things hold together. So the gospel is not seeking to pull you apart. The gospel is seeking to hold you together, which means then that the idea of anxiety and anxiousness and worry and stress and all of the burdens that we want to carry on our shoulders are the antithesis of what the gospel is seeking to do. The gospel is seeking to set you free. The gospel is seeking to break the chains of anxiety, not to pull you apart, but to hold you together. And what holds you together is not you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps so that you can figure it out. What holds you together is the almighty, awesome, indescribable power of Jesus Christ Almighty. That's what holds us together. Listen, I, 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 was, I was reading so much about just kind of college students and where they are in the midst uh, of this you know, kind of pandemic. And I was reading a study that was talking about how many college students that over the last semester uh, of their college life, they, this past uh, semester, failed didn't drop out, flunked out. That they found themselves either stuck in an apartment all by themselves because they couldn't get to wherever it was that they needed to get or, or they were having to pay rent on this apartment or either in a dorm room or, or they went home where they had left all of their friends and everybody they knew and they kind of went back home and things aren't the same at home as it was when they left home and they just kind of closed themselves off in their room and next thing you knew, they just closed everything off and put aside everything about it and just found themselves being pulled apart by the anxious thoughts and by the worries and the stress of everything that the world would want to put on them. I'm telling you, Jesus wants to intervene in that. 
But to do that, we have to humble ourselves. Because see, in verse seven, it says to cast all our anxiety on him. That all is past, present, and future. Because here's what we do. And when I say we, I'll say me. Here's what I do. We get to the problems that we face. And then we try to decipher what are the problems that I can handle and what are the problems that I'm gonna give to God. Anybody do that? Nobody. Man, you guys are with me. And so, no, okay, I got people. No, like, don't, I, I do this all the time. I'm like, no, I got this. I can, I can figure this part out. And what God is asking us to do is not to try to figure it out. God's asking us to cast all our anxieties on him. Past, present, future, every single one of it. Because see, here's what we were called to do in the gospel. Christ called us to take up our cross and follow him and to carry the name of Jesus. We do that, God's gonna take up the burdens and the difficulties and the trials and the anxieties and everything that we're facing, but we have to turn it over to him. It's letting go, humbling ourselves enough to know that I can't figure this out and I can't do this by myself. And I'm gonna give all of this to God so that I can take up all that I am and follow after him and carry my cross and carry his name. That's why the psalmist says, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. So in the midst of the difficulty, we have to humble ourselves. The second thing we have to do is watch for the enemy. Watch for the enemy. Look at verse eight. It says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So one of the reasons that we have trials is because we have an enemy. So as a serpent, Satan deceives. Peter now comes in and shares with us that as the lion, Satan devours. That word Satan means adversary. And the word devil means the accuser or the slanderer. And so the recipients of this letter had already experienced the attacks of the slanderer. Now Peter is presenting to them the fact that they're going to meet the lion in the midst of their fiery trial. And he's just laying out for them some kind of practical instructions of how to walk in the victory that they have over their adversary because of what Christ has done. And he just lays out to them there. He just says, you got to know what he's about. That he is dangerous. Satan is a dangerous enemy. He's a serpent who can bite us when we least expect it. He's a destroyer. He's an accuser. He has great power, great intelligence, and a host of demons that will assist him in his attacks against God's people. He's a formidable enemy. We shouldn't joke about him. We shouldn't underestimate his ability. And we absolutely, as believers, have to have our minds under control when it comes to our conflict with Satan. Like we, we see this far too often, that, that whether it's depicted in television shows or cartoons or movies, kind of this, this trivialization, if you will, of Satan. Church scripture makes it abundantly clear that he is nothing to be trivialized, but he is something that we should be on guard for, that we should be alert, self-controlled, sober-minded, watchful, and ready, because as believers, we are to understand and know that when we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, then we are targets for Satan to come and to attack us. 
And that's just the reality here. And the only way for us to be prepared for that and to know what he's about is to get our information about him from the word of God. Not from our own interpretation, not from our own experiences, but what God's word says about who he is and what he is seeking to do. So we have to know that he's dangerous. But what he is seeking to do is that he is the great pretender. He's seeking to lie to us. John 8, says that he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because he's a subtle foe, like we have to be vigilant. We have to be on guard. His strategy is to counterfeit whatever God does. Matthew 13 tells us that wherever God plants a true Christian, Satan is seeking to come and plant a counterfeit one. And he would deceive us if not for the word of God and for the spirit of God. This is why I get asked this a lot. Well, how do you know if it's really Satan? How do you know if it's false? Hear me on this, church. The only way for you to know if it's false is for you to absolutely know what is the truth. The more you know the truth, the more you will be able to recognize and point out the falsehood and the lies of Satan. That's why we have to be in our word. The better we know God's word, the more prepared that we are going to be. It's not called the sword of the spirit for nothing. It is our defense. It is our offensive weapon against the lies that Satan would seek to put in our path. And so we have to know what he's trying to do. We also have to know how to stand against him. Peter just says to resist him. When he says that, he's talking about taking our stand on the word of God and refusing to be moved. But unless we stand, we cannot withstand. Our weapons are the word of God and prayer. Our protection is the armor of God as seen in Ephesians 6. We resist him in the faith that is our faith in God. So just as David took his stand against Goliath and trusted in the name of Jehovah, what we are doing is we're taking our stand against Satan in the victorious name of Jesus Christ. Church, it's not our fight. The battle belongs to the Lord, and we're to resist him with the word of God. James just says in James 4, 7, says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So long before we can stand against Satan, we have to get to the place where we will bow before God. So we have to humble ourselves, and then we have to watch for the enemy. And then finally this morning, we just have to hope in Christ hope in Christ. Look at verse 10. It says, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That was pre-COVID-19. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter is seeking to close this letter on a positive note. And he's just wanting to remind us that God knew what he was doing. And to remind us this morning that God knows what he is doing. See, none of this took God by surprise. The pandemic didn't take God by surprise. The racial division did not take God 
by surprise. The societal unrest did not take God by surprise. We'll just shrink this back to things more personal. The loss of your job did not take God by surprise. The sickness that you have felt personally in your family did not take God by surprise. The loss that you have suffered did not take God by surprise. I understand that the difficulties are there, that the burdens are heavy, that the trials are intense, but God is not surprised by any of it. God knew what was going to happen. God knows what is going to happen, and he is in complete control. God has not left his throne. God has not taken his eye off of you and me and his church. God has not turned the other way. God is present. God is with us. God is in our midst. His presence is real and his power is true. And so God knows what is going on. And Peter just wants to say to you, you can know this and know that God is in control so that you can have hope. We're not talking about hope that is superficial. We're talking about hope that is in Christ. That no matter how difficult the trial may be, that a Christian, that the church, that believers, that we always have hope. And he just lays it out here. Verse 10, uh, we're just going to kind of walk through verse 10 here because he lays out just, just multiple things here. But he just says there, he says, the God of all grace. He's just letting us know that we have God's grace. Amen? We have God's grace. Our salvation is because of his grace. He called us before we called him. We've tasted and seen that the Lord is gracious. So because of that, we're not afraid of anything that he purposes out for our lives. His grace meets every situation in our lives. And as we submit to him, he gives us the grace that we need. In fact, as Peter says, he is the God of all grace. That he has grace to help in every time of need. I love it in verse 12, he gives us more grace and he just says there, stand fast in it. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have God's grace, but if you keep looking in verse 10, he says, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. We know we are going to glory. He has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. I was thinking about this as I was just praying and studying and preparing. You know, we wake up every morning and we have places that we have to go. First, first place I gotta go in the morning is Chick-fil-A. And then I figure everything out after that. Man, I, people clap more for Chick-fil-A, all right? So, um, no, like, like we, we know. Like, there's places, you gotta go to work. You gotta go to the grocery store. You gotta go get gas. You gotta go to all these places. When's the last time you woke up as a believer in Jesus Christ and said to yourself, you know where I'm going? I'm going to glory. I'm going to glory in Christ Jesus. That's coming for you and for me, for the church. We're going to glory. This is the inheritance into which we were born. Peter wrote about it at the very beginning. It's an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. It's kept in heaven for you and for me. And so whatever begins with God's grace will always lead to God's glory. And if we depend on God's grace when we suffer, that suffering will result in glory. Look back up in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13. It says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 
If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I get it, the road may be difficult, but that road leads to glory, and that's what counts in our lives. He also tells us, he says there, he says, after you have suffered a little while. So our present suffering is only for a while. The various trials that we're going through, we go through for a season, but the glory that results from those trials, it is eternal. Paul uses this same thought when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. So our present suffering is only for a while. But then he, I love it, he closes out verse 10. And he says, he'll restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So how do we have hope in Christ? We know that our trials are building character in Christ. Some translations there, that latter part of verse 10, have the, the phrase, make you perfect. And in the Greek, that just simply means to equip, to adjust, to fit together. And God uses a lot of different tools to equip his people for life and to equip us for ministry and work in his name. And suffering is one of those. The word of God is another tool. He uses the fellowship and the ministry of the church in that. But no matter what he uses, Christ is perfecting in us as his children so that we'll do his will and we'll ultimately carry out his work. And Peter uses kind of three words there to describe this kind of character that God is seeking for us to have. He says they restore you or to establish. That just simply means to fix firmly or to set fast. And as Christians, we can't be unsteady in our stand for Christ. Our hearts need to be established. And we establish that, and it's accomplished by the truth of God's word. And a believer who is established by the word of God, by the unchanging, unflinching word of God, will not be moved by persecution, and will not be led away by false doctrine. So he says to establish that. He also says to make you strong, or to strengthen. God's strength is given to us to meet the demands of the life in which we face. As I said, God's not surprised by anything that we're going through, nor has God left you or forsaken you. So in doing that, God has also provided for you not just strength in your capacity, but strength that you can't think or imagine of because it is his power. It is the same power that lives within us that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That's the power that we have. That is the strength in which he has given us to be able to face the trials and to move throughout the life in which we are having. And so he just says to strengthen that. But he also says firm and steadfast, or to settle. Just laying a foundation. Because a house that's founded on the rock is the one that will withstand the storm. A believer who's equipped by the will of God will continue in the faith. Established, firm in that faith, not moved from the hope that was held out in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Won't be tossed back and forth by the wind and the waves. Let's just be real here this morning. Some of you, you've just entered into a relationship with Christ and you've just become a new believer. Think about what life was like as an unbeliever when suffering or when trials or difficulties entered in. 
I got friends that, that are lost, that don't have a relationship with Christ, some that are watching right now. And in talking to them through some uh, of just kind of the, the situations that have unfolded over the last five months in their lives, every conversation comes back to this sense of, of hopelessness or this sense of darkness. But church here, if you're a believer this morning, man, suffering only increases that hope. Paul writes in Romans 5, verses 3 through 4, he says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Man, God builds character and he brightens hope when a believer will trust him and depend on his grace. And the result is that God then receives glory forever and ever, as Peter writes here. So I'm just curious this morning, how many of you are hoping for something? If you're watching online or on television right now, how many of you are hoping for something? Whenever I hear that word hope, I immediately think of a movie from 1998 called Hope Floats. Uh, it's got Harry Connick Jr., Sandra Bullock in it. Um, I know I got a little bit younger crowd in here. Does anybody know what movie I'm talking about so I'm not alone? In, okay, all right, good. So, um, so this movie, uh, I, I won't go into the plot line of the movie. It's just, you know, girl meets guy, guy meets girl. They live happily ever after. It's, they're all the same. And so, but, but this movie starts, um, and it starts with a feather. And, and it's like this, this picture of like this lake, and then this feather, and then the feather just drops a little bit more gracefully than that, and, and it lands in the water, and it just floats in the water, and it kind of moves on, and it's like hope floats, and you're off and running with, with the movie. I was thinking about that and, and getting prepared for this. Can I just tell you, that is not what hope is really all about. Like, we throw that word hope around a lot. It's, I hope you feel better. I hope this situation works out. I, I, I hope I get to go to this place. I hope. I hope I get this job. I, I, I hope, I hope, I hope. And we say it over and over again. But the thing that we have to begin to grasp this morning is that hope does not just float up to the top and make us feel better. Like, can I just tell you, that, that's, that's not a good strategy for the realities of the life in which we face. Of just kind of hoping, hey, that maybe this, this fleeting thing will land in such a way and float up to the top and everything will just be the greatest thing in the world. Because that, that's not what it's about. What we don't need is you and I today don't need fluffy pillow hope. We don't. Like, those things are fleeting. Like, if I throw these up in the air, there's nothing that you can anchor your life in, nothing that you can grab hold of, nothing that you can really attach yourself to. 
and nothing that's going to hold you secure. So you and I this morning, we don't need fluffy pillow hope. We need something that we can hope in, someone that we can hope in and count on that is a strong and sure foundation. And so as we close this series, as we wrap up and we close the book on 1 Peter for this time that we've been in, it's not going to be about us coming to the end of this and saying, hey, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. It's not going to be like, hey, the sun's going to come out tomorrow. So just stick out your chin and grin and say, and dance your little dance and sing your little song, and everybody just be cheery about it because, hey, it's going to all be all right, right? No, because people will walk out of here and say, man, it's not going to be all right. It's not all right right now, Tim. And I'll tell you this much, the sun may come out tomorrow, but the problem's still going to be there, and the difficulty's still going to be there, and I've still got the sickness. I still don't have the job. I still don't have this. There's darkness. There's hopelessness. It's all around. And so, no, we can't come to the end of this and just say, hey, everything's going to be all right. But rather, it's coming to the end of this series and understanding that at the bottom, that there is something to stand on, that there is something that we can anchor our lives in, and that it is not about hope that flows to the top, but rather it is about hope that is a cinder block that we can know sits at the bottom. And as it sits at the bottom, as we find ourselves at the bottom, that it is Christ Jesus who is the cinder block of hope in our lives that we can stand on and that we can rest in and that will hold us and secure us in all time for all time. That is the hope in which we have in Jesus Christ. It's not fleeting, but you can anchor your life in it. And it's a cinder block that will hold you when you feel like you've gone under. And it will carry you. And when we anchor our lives in that hope, in the person of Jesus Christ, then we can get to a place where we can just simply say this, man, Jesus, he has a plan for me. That's what hope in Christ means. I can stand in assurance and say, Jesus has a plan for me. I can stand with assurance and say that Jesus is my salvation so that when it all goes down, when it feels like everything comes crashing around me, I know this much, that Jesus has come through, will come through, and that Jesus is enough. It's being able to say with conviction in the hope that we have in Christ, and I'm on my way to God with God, and there is nobody that can stop that. There's no pandemic, there's no, there's no loss, there is nothing that can stand in the way of God's people being on their way to God, with God, in the name of Jesus. That's why Paul says in Romans, he says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the hope in which we stand. And we can just simply say that there is nothing, nothing that can stop God's plan for me because Jesus Christ, the hope in which I am anchored, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why the psalmist could write, just simply say, I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. And so Peter's message is just this, church, it's be hopeful. Be hopeful. 
Don't be hopeless. Be hopeful. Because you are safe and secure in the person of Jesus Christ. Anchor yourself in him. Stand in him. Because he's standing with you. And his presence and his power is for you and with you. And he will carry you. And he will walk with you. And when it's all said and done, Christ will reign. And we as his church will reign with him in glory. So yes, there may be difficulty. But in the midst of the difficulty, there is Jesus. So just with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. There may be some of you either here in the room or you're watching online right now and you say, man, you got to that place, Tim, and you're talking about suffering and how there's just no hope. And you say, that's where I am. I just wanna say to you this morning that hope has a name and his name is Jesus. And you can cry out to him and surrender your life to him right now. Just simply praying this, Jesus, I need you. I tried to put my hope in so many other things. And every time I do, I just feel like it's, I'm lacking for something. So Jesus, I want you, I need you to be the Lord of my life. So I surrender it to you. Ask Lord that you forgive me, that you rescue me, and that you lead me from this day forward. If you prayed that, that's a decision you made, man, we just wanna encourage you to go to crosslifechurch.com slash welcome, let us know. If you're here in the room and that's a prayer that you prayed, we've got people in the back in the atrium as you leave today at our next steps tables. They'd love to pray for you. They'd love to encourage you. Just challenge you in that. But just for the church here, in the room, believers, just want to know, does the watching world see what you've anchored your life in? Because the beauty is, is that the hope that we have in Christ, it is a living hope. It's living, it's active, it's powerful. It leads us, it guides us, it never leaves us or forsakes us. So maybe this morning you just have like gotten clouded by the storms around you. Just need to declare once again, man, Jesus Christ, you are my living hope. So we want to do that, just to worship as an opportunity to respond to what it may be that God is laying on your heart. Just want to encourage you, whether you're at home or here in the room, would you stand now? Let's just lift up that Jesus Christ, that he is our living hope. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.